Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Today, we're so excited to welcome Huma Abedin to the show. Huma started as an intern in the Clinton White House at the age of just 21. She went on to work as a leader on Hillary Clinton's team during her time in the U.S. Senate as Secretary of State and later as Vice Chairwoman of her presidential campaign. Huma just published her first book, the best-selling story of her life, both and. One of the things that strikes me about you is your poise. And it's hard for me to think of anyone, truly anyone, who's as poised and gracious and handles themselves as well in public. And so I think because of that, this sort of soap opera you found yourself in was even that much more startling, the contrast between Anthony's transgression and who you are. How did you reconcile that? First of all, I've been asked a lot of questions about my book. No one asked me this question, but I was actually quite klutzy growing up. I was I was the cut up in our family. My, my older brother and sister were you know, super, you know, they did everything right. And my little sister, um, Sam, who you know, was always the perfect princess, the beautiful. And I was the one right in the middle who every time we had a family play uh, that we put on for my parents, I was always like, my brother was both Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. And my older sister was Princess Leah. And, and sometimes Hibba, my little sister was Princess Leah. And I was always Chewbacca. Because I was always the one breaking things and like wandering around. So I think it's so funny when people say to me as an adult that they think I'm poised because I take that as a huge, and it's not how I see myself. You know how sometimes we perceive ourselves in certain ways and I've never sort of broken uh, out of that image that I had of myself. But I do think I give credit to my father and mother because from a very young age, they forced me out into the world. Um, you know, I share stories in the book about being seven and eight and, and being sent down the hall to talk to my father's academic friends and talk about my poetry and my writing and, and being in adult conversations and being surrounded by adult conversations I th- at the time was just normal for me. But now that I'm raising, I have a 10-year-old boy and, you know, all three of us are talking about our children and maybe it's a, a sort of a different way. I think in some ways, uh, certain parents, like they, their children have their lives and they, they're scheduled and then they have their own professional lives. In my house, we were just along for the ride. It's my dad's going to a conference in Indonesia. We were going to that conference in Indonesia. And I think that gave me that kind of confidence at 21 or that poise to use the word, Sam, that you used. Uh, I think it was a benefit. How did you reconcile then what happened with your public persona? Well, I think, you know, when you're going through it, you just figure out how, at least for me, I had to figure out how to be out in the world. And growing up in politics, growing up in the Clinton White House, where there was so much external stress and pressure all the time, 
so much. I write extensively about this notion of the shot and everything needing to look right and look perfect. And you're telling a story. I mean, in part, that's what politics is and public service is, is you're telling the story. And in my case, it was telling the story for the American people, particularly when I was representing my country around the world. So I had that in me. And so when I had to go through my own personal trauma, while there were certain things I didn't think about, you know, I write the story of, I didn't even get my hair done. I didn't care about what I was wearing. And I have to walk out to this press conference and face cameras for the first time in my life. And it's amazing because you asked me, maybe even today, I would think, okay, if I'm going to be on camera, what am I going to wear and how am I going to look? You're just trying to get through the day. And I, in many of those instances, I was just trying to get through the day and doing the best I can. And maybe what you saw was poise. And may, for me, it was just you know, trying to make it through each 24-hour period. How long did you feel like you were just trying to make it through that day? I want to say that I, I went through that period of trauma, I would say a good decade. I mean, I think it was, it, it was, I had to get off the treadmill in 2016, forced off political treadmill in 2016 when Hillary lost. And, um, you know, my dad would always tell me when I was little, a good life is a balanced life. But uh, I did not follow that advice. I did not live a balanced life. My life was my work. Everything else was secondary. And then, of course, that changed when my son was born. But even then, even when Jordan was born, I, there was always this push and pull, you know, leaving home to go to work and your mom, your child comes up to you and says, Mommy, where, where are you going? And when are you coming back? And that, you know, how that pulls at, um, at your heartstrings. And so I would say a good solid decade. I had to get professional help and I had to really find myself and learn about self-care and go into therapy and find God again took a while. You've mentioned your dad a few times now, and you open your book talking about your parents and your grandparents with some really remarkable stories. But one thing that I think stuck with both Sam and me is your father had you call airlines to like make reservations and make changes when you were just a kid. Do you think that prepared you for your career, your work? I think everything my father did, and, and in part, and I try to now understand it, I didn't know that then, but I, I open sharing the truth about my family's life and that my father was diagnosed with renal failure when I was two. And it's one of the reasons we moved to Saudi Arabia from Michigan. And he didn't know how long he had. I mean, the doctor basically said you had five to 10 years, get your affairs in order. And I think about the, the sense of hope and optimism my parents had. I mean, my little sister was conceived after that news. I mean, that is how when I said the first, one of the first lines I wrote in the book was my father was told he was dying. So he went out and he lived. And I think he was trying to teach us how to live without him. And number one, it was an excuse to spend time with us, come to my office, help me make photocopies, sharpen the pencils. So it was physically being in each other's space, but also preparing us. And the airlines, oh my God, that was terrifying. But I got you know really good at it and I really enjoyed it. And that love of travel came from them. You talk about advanced work, which I love. And you talk about how you think like advanced work will help you in any career. So I wanted to ask for those non-politicos out there to explain what advanced work is and like what you meant by you think it can help prepare you for any career. Well, you know, first of all, I think advance is not even specific necessarily to politics and serving in the White House or a president, but it is when you work um, for a mission, a brand, a company, in my case, it was a president and first lady, and you're sent out to prepare for their visit, their trip, their speech, their meeting. 
the reason I write in the book about, and, and you're responsible for everything, the logistics, where when, they, when the car pulls up, where they go, where they walk, where they sit, you know, what they say, who they think. And I always say that advanced people are ambassadors for whoever they work for, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter if you work for Nike or if you work for Bill Clinton. If you are doing advanced for them, the reason your job is so important because you're often the first point of interaction with your host. It's, you know, I, I, there's this great lake story. I, I share the story about this woman who had a chip on her shoulder about Hillary because, you know, we couldn't figure out why she didn't like her. And it turned out because she was seated badly at the White House at some fancy dinner. And we spent so much time figuring out, you know, how to treat people properly. They don't hold it against me as the advanced person. They hold it against the principal. And so for me, it's like, you know, I, I describe an advanced person as kind of as a MacGyver. You have to be a problem solver. You have to learn how to deal with people logistics, confidence, policy, you get a whole kind of mix of it. And I think it if you can do advance well, you can do any job in the world. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of your relationship with Hillary, because, you know, you started out as this intern just kind of idolizing her and then became today one of her closest friends. One of the most striking things about your book was watching that relationship evolve. You know, Hillary Land is a big place and uh, there are lots of members. In fact, I was on a Zoom with somebody yesterday and she says, you know, I'm a member of Hillary Land too. I mean, people feel deeply connected. And I write that it's a place where, you know, you don't just have professional support and encouragement, but it, it is personal too. It is the go talk to my allergist or how's your mother doing? All of these, you know, feelings of support, which frankly, I think every professional environment should have. But one of the things that I think is unique about Hillary Clinton, and I'm so privileged to be in this circle, and it's not just me, because there's I think there's many women and some men too who feel like they have a very similar relationship to Hillary, not that I don't have anything necessarily special. It's like, I got that with Hillary too. But she really is a talent kind of minor. Like she knows what you're good at in some ways better than even you know. Um, when we were in the Senate, there was this young man who was an intern at the time. And he wrote up, you know, uh, a review of a baseball game that our Senate staff uh, had been involved in. And Hillary, you know, just happens to see it and says, you know what? He's really good. Have him write more. I mean, he's like a 19-year-old intern or whatever. Long story short, I mean, she really cultivated that talent. He went on to write two New York Times best-selling books with her. It is, you know, uh, one of our group member uh, organizations we work with said the thing that people don't know about Hillary Clinton is she's a young leader incubator. And every, and I really believe that's true. But for me, whenever I've had personal challenges in my life, she has approached all of those conversations as a friend first and as a boss second. And I think it's one of the reasons why, I mean, that, that's the loyalty that she inspires in people. People stick around for a long time. It's a club that comes with lifetime membership, and I'm lucky to be part of that club. The day that Hillary lost is etched in in all of our minds, I think, in terms of just I remember, you know, waking my daughter and she was crying. And we all have our stories of the, the shock of the election, no matter what side you were on. What was it like for you, though? Because it wasn't just about someone close to you losing. It was also a change in your career trajectory. I was so, at that point in the campaign, um, to remind your listeners, 11 days before the election, the FBI made this unprecedented announcement saying that the investigation mm -hmm. into um, her use of emails at the State Department was being re-explored because of a laptop 
that my emails um, had been found on. And that took me a very, to live that with that guilt of feeling as though I was responsible for her loss took me a few years, a few years to really, and even now there are days where I, every, there's not a single day, ladies, that I wake up and don't think about how much better this country would have been if she had been president in 2016, not a single day. And that's something I know I have to live with for the rest of my life. Now I have allowed myself to forgive myself for the responsibility, but it doesn't mean I don't, I'm not reminded. What did you do that morning? It, um, we did what we always do. We went to work. She got in the van to go home and I got on the subway with two colleagues. Um, and we went back to our headquarters in Brooklyn and it was all about just trying to help people navigate, figure out what they were going to do, shutting down the campaign, which was a huge undertaking. Thousands of people worked there. And so those of us who were part of the leadership had to, you know, help figure out how to uh, help manage through that. So work was always the thing that allowed you to compartmentalize the devastation. And that included uh, the day after the election. What did you do with all that anger you were feeling? I, I, I kept it in a lot of it. I just sort of, you know, I just allowed myself. I was, you know, seething for a period of time. And I just, it was just, you know, kind of festering. But as the parent of a five-year-old, you didn't have a lot of time to feel sorry for yourself or to be angry or so much of my approach to the world right after Hillary's loss was number one figuring out how to help her, my son, making sure he was going to be okay. I had to deal with the fact that my son was about to lose his father to federal prison. So you didn't, I mean, maybe a lot of women could relate to this. You don't spend a lot of time thinking about your own feelings because you don't have a lot of empty space to do that when you're going through that. And now a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. One thing about your book that really struck me was the acknowledgments. And you wrote, I want to thank Anthony for two things. First and foremost, for our extraordinary son. And second, for giving me an experience where I felt like I was the most special person in the room. Why did you write that? I thought it was important, very important to share. I, I, I think, you know, as we were writing the book, my, the woman who was helping me do the research said that so many of the headlines about you are what's wrong with her and what is she thinking? It's one of the reasons... I chose to write exactly what I was thinking. And to step back, this idea that the single most important thing in my life, that the reason I live would not exist without the man who put me through all of this, how can I not have gratitude for that? And I do. And secondly, for those of us who have experienced that love, that connection with somebody, 
and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to sort of, I shared how much I felt loved and was in love when I first met Anthony and that, and that feeling I think is pretty special. And, um, so I, I've known that I've known what it's like to feel that and it's a pretty great feeling. And I hope one day I'll have that feeling again. It's a, it's extraordinary. I think it's important to have that in one's life for balance and mental and emotional health. And he did give me that. It was fleeting, as I write. It was short, um, but I had it, and it was worth it. Do you still love Anthony? He is my partner, and he will be forever in raising our son. But that, you know, we, we, we will always have that. I think the love that we had as a couple, that love connection that we had when we, you know, first met is something that is another lifetime. Uh, that cannot be anymore. Do you remember when you felt that was gone? I don't. I, that's a good, uh, an, an interesting question. I don't. You know, when you are in a relationship with somebody, and believe me, there are plenty of people who say, I don't get it. I don't get it. How can you still talk to him? How can you still see him? Or the opposite, like, oh, I don't get it. He's amazing, which people do say, believe it or not. But um, when you're in a relationship with somebody who has an issue, issues with either mental health or addiction or behavior they can't control. For so long, you're constantly in the caretaking. Like, are they going to be okay? What are they doing? What's going on? So when does it go from feeling like you're equal partners in a relationship to what are they, how can I help this person? And that happened fairly quickly. I mean, I wasn't even, my, my child was still growing inside my belly when I went from, I had to figure out how to help fix my spouse. So that happened a very, very long time ago. So I couldn't even tell you, Amy, because it, it was so kind of gradual and also over a very long period of time. And I, and I having a terminally ill father, I will, was a big part of it. I mean, the first time it happened, yes, I deeply loved my husband. But beyond that, I was also conscious of the fact that I did not have a choice when my father was taken away from me. He died when I was 17 and it shattered me. I mean, it shattered me when my father died. I, I, I couldn't talk. I couldn't even tell people he wasn't living um, for two years. Like that's how much it affected me. So I was not going to do that to my son. I was going to give him, I was going to do whatever I could to give him a house with two parents. And I tried. I really tried. Didn't work, but I tried. And, and look, even now I'm amicable with his father and we both come, we come together for dinners and we do holidays together. And I want him to know that he is loved and supported and I want him to see that. I want him to see two parents who respect each other. It's really important. What is your dating life like today? Well, Sam, I wish I had some better news for you. It's I have nothing exciting. <laughs> I mean, I I do share. I'm very open about this. I was I was so controlled in my 20s and 30s. I anything that came in the way of work or even a commitment, I constantly ran from. I said no. I. I mean, I, there are men who asked me out who I 100% regret not saying yes to now. Like, what? Why? What was I thinking? But it was because it was work. It was Hillary. We were going to Brazil. I don't have time for this. No distractions. But I, I, have, I have a whole new approach to my life now. And so I'm open and welcoming new relationships. And, and I'm really ha I'm having a good time. Do you feel like the rules are different for you? Like you can't go on Tinder because you are a public figure or do you feel like you can go on dating sites comfortably? 
I've never been on a dating site. The whole thing kind of scares me. First of all, I'm so bad at anything technology related. I wouldn't even be able to figure it out. I'm not exaggerating. So I'm kind of, maybe I'm still a romantic in some ways. Like I just would love to just meet some, like just, you know, and I know in New York, it's really hard. To take a slightly different twist on this about relationships, you put work first most of your life and you have Jordan and you've been really busy. Who are your friends? Like, who do you hang out with? I make time for friends. And I, again, I'm also very public with this. I I learned a hard lesson in friendship uh, when I went through my first um, drama or scandal or whatever you want to call it with Anthony. I, I was surprised at the conditions that friends had put on our friendship, that people who didn't want to, you know, I, there's two chapters in the book, Shame, Shame, Go Away and Elephant in the Room, that were very hard in the in that moment, you know, to go from being this really outgoing child, which I was, and I always had a lot of friends growing up, and then to not know where you're welcome. You know, for so long, when I walked into a party, I thought, who here doesn't want me here? And that's hard to do when it's your friends who do it to you. And so uh, I had to I had to let go of the control of that. And I also found a whole new group of friends. And it's one of the reasons why Anna Wintour is a character in my story and in my life, because what she gave me, and it's funny, I was on a Zoom yesterday and the woman was like, what do you think this is, you know, about fashion and politics? And I said, no, I think she just was a good friend. And so many of my particularly girlfriends in my life who I reach out to are people who she introduced me to in New York, not in politics. Uh, some people in the fashion world, um, but not all, you know, and uh, uh, the theater and just a really interesting group of creative people who I find fascinating and I enjoy their company. But in the olden days, I would be busy and I'd land at 10 o'clock and I would text you, Sam, and say, are you free right now for dinner? And I mean, it was ridiculous. And in hindsight, even I think it's ridiculous. And now I just will text a friend and say, how are you doing? How is, you know, let's see each other. I never used to do that before. And I think it's very important to do that. It's interesting because when when I was reading the book, I sort of started worrying about you because suddenly you have this empty schedule. So it wasn't like you went from having a really tough job to going to, you know, instead of being home at 10 o'clock at night, you were home at six. You went from doing that to suddenly having a job as an author and a podcaster. So, I mean, having those days that you have to structure, what has that been like for you? The last two and a half months uh, for the book tour have been insanity. But pre that, even when I was in the writing period, and even as I was working on these other projects with Hillary, which I'm lucky to still be doing several very exciting things with her, I am so much better about self-care, ladies. I will take a one-hour hike or I'll just go and just sit and read or I'll, I will get a massage. Things, All these things that I felt like were selfish to do, like who has time to get a massage? You know what? I do. Or even think, I mean, I think I went, when I was working in the Senate, this is not an exaggeration and this is frivolous, but I think I went like two years without getting a manicure because that's 30 minutes I don't have. And so just to go to that balance, I go visit my mom on the weekends and, you know, it's the ability to say no, which I didn't, couldn't do before. You know, I remember, I have not shared this story and I'm still so traumatized by it. When Jordan was born and Hillary was Secretary of State and I, um, I was living in New York, she was in Washington. I remember she called me um, and um, 
I came home and she said there was a crisis. She had to get on the phone with me right away about some rural disaster. And I remember walking into my apartment and my babysitter was there. And she tells me with her hand, she points to Jordan's head because he'd fallen at the playground. And he had a, he actually had a bump on his head and she's pointing and she's like, but I got him. And I remember standing at the entrance of the nursery and I could have done two things. One, I said, I got to call you back or no, let's talk about Libya. And you know what I did? I talked about Libya. Talked about Libya. And the, the judgment I made in that moment was, okay, he's got a bump. He's not crying. Stella's there. Okay, let me deal with this crisis and then I'll go back and I'll cuddle with him. But I still have guilt that I did that. That was the choice I made. I have guilt about not being present, more present for him in his early. I was not, I didn't see his first steps. I missed his first word. Uh, I know that. Now, on the flip side, every time I tell my mom this story, she says, you know, he's not going to remember any of this. What he remembers is now, now at 10 years old, like literally when the first day when they came in to set up, when Nora O'Donnell came to interview me right here for a CBS Sunday, Jordan w- walks out of his room. He says, mommy, are you filming a TikTok today? And I said, no, no, no. I'm doing an interview with a woman named Nora O'Donnell for CBS. He's like, ah, Whatever. Like, so uninterested. But now he cares. When are you going and when are you coming back? And he remembers. So you didn't get a pedicure, a manicure for for two years and you're in the Senate. And you were working, you know, probably every waking hour for many years in your 20s and 30s. Would you change that now? Well, I mean, not to give away the ending, but of course I say I would do it all over again. So probably not. I mean, but that's how I was one of the many ways I was successful. You know, I as starting at 21, I was prepared. I wasn't the best. I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't the prettiest. I wasn't ever the ist, ist, ist of anything. But I was prepared to outwork anybody else, always. And now, a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I want to go back to this unstructured life thing because there's something I don't buy. I feel like it still must be hard for you sometimes to wake up and not necessarily know what the day looks like. I mean, right now is different because you're on your book tour and you're packed, right? But what about those days that are not so full? I was talking to my boss before I got on with you guys. The number of times I have said to her on calls, because we still talk at least once a day, usually more than once. And um, the number of times over the last, since 2016, so what is that, five years now? 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. Oh my God, almost six years. 
the number of times I've said to her on a phone, how is it that you are technically unemployed and all of us are exhausted and overworked? Like, oh. what is happening? <laughs> and that's the thing. Our tagline that she and I, and I'm, I don't even think it's, I left it in the book, is it's always an adventure. There is always something happening. There's always a book or a podcast, but I'm better. You know, I will take time and go to the gym, which I didn't do until after 2016. I, you know, I, I will take time just to go see my family. Like, who does that? Guess what? Normal people do that. Go see their family for no reason. And she's gotten, you know, good about that too. God, in, when I walked in 1999 admiring this woman, you think I would have said to her, I have a family wedding? No, I would say, send me to Argentina. So anyway, some of it just comes with experience too and having that confidence and uh, in yourself and in the relationship. Do you tell her now when you're busy, if she calls and you're busy? Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time. And, so, and, and vice versa, you know, she'll text me and say, can you call? And I'll say, I've got this. Can I call it four or five? But no, I didn't used to do that, Amy, in the olden days. In the old, oh my God, I would be... I don't, I got a Ferris wheel with my son. I'm like, yeah, I got it. Okay. Um, I would be at brunches and have a thing in my ear and just do both. Uh, I was never really present for most social uh, things uh, that I was at. What is your relationship like with money? It's something we talk about a lot on this show is women and money. And you have seen so much of the world. And I wonder if that's also changed how you think about women and money. I'm so glad you're asking me this. And I'll tell you why. I have a lot of insecurity about money. And um, I think in part because I grew up comfortably middle class. We never, you know, I, my parents by no means were rich, but they were, they were very smart about how they spent their money. But, you know, I was in public service from the day I walked out. My, my first job was $27,500 $27, a year. That was a lot of money from back then. And when you work in government, there's a cap. When I left, I would say five years after I left uh, GW, I went to school in Washington. I was making the least amount of money by far of all of my peers. I think raising a 10-year-old child on your own in New York City, I think there's always this feeling of, is there going to be enough? I think it's very expensive, not think. It is very expensive to live in Manhattan, to send your child to private school. And um, and maybe this is a thing, you know, there's this uh, book called Why We Can't Sleep. I can't remember the author's name, but it's about women. Apparently, it's also a generational thing about women in their 40s that you get to this point where you are you are constantly worried about it. But it's just the way we were raised and, you know, how our minds were kind of raised in the, the decade of excess in the 80s. And to now realize you're in your 40s and now do I make enough money that I could, you know, retire? And by the way, it's very depressing, but also great. And everything she said is right and accurate. And she's brilliant. So I have to figure that out. I mean, one day I have to grow up and, you know, uh, get a, you know, think about fin my financial security. I didn't have to do that. I didn't, I didn't have to do it. I didn't care about it enough before. And it's different when you have a child. Where do you get financial advice? I don't know. What are you guys doing after this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I realize like that's, this is really bad. I mean, Chase, I, I should get a financial advisor probably. Your parents were academics. Like, did you ever talk about money growing up? We didn't, but my parents, my mother was, you know, my mother was a refugee. She had her family had to leave India. They fled for Pakistan on that ship. She, that mentality stayed with her. She wasn't, she was frugal. Is that the right word? I want to make sure it's the right word. She was, you know, careful 
about how she spent our money. So it would be, we, she always shopped in the sales section just because it was, why would I buy something for $40 when I could get something for $29.99? By the way, I think it was also like part of the, you know, I got a great deal um, kind of a thing. But so, you know, there were, and they were disciplined. So much about our life was disciplined. It was like, you can get one Barbie. Could they afford to? Sure. But you're getting one Barbie. You have to know what it is to appreciate and, and, and value certain things. So I didn't grow up worried about money per se, but I knew that it wasn't a limitless supply. One of the things you're known for is your sense of style. Where do you shop today? I don't shop very often. I'm so lucky that I have, I do have friends who are designers. I often wear, you know, one thing is I don't, I'm not the current latest style person. Like I'm at that, I know my body well enough to say, this is what looks good on me. And this is, you know, what I'm going to buy. But I have a few friends who are designers and, you know, I like to support them. Or I'll, you know, go on the website. I <clears throat> I just want to announce, I go online. I go online. I know how to do that. I go on Net-A-Porte. <laughs> I go on Moda. I want to go back and ask a question that I meant to ask a follow-up to early on. When you talked about your father being diagnosed with renal failure when you were two, you mentioned that was part of the catalyst to move from Michigan to Saudi Arabia. Why? I think that um, for my parents, you know, I, 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 I just can't remember if I shared this, but my father um, was up for a sabbatical. He was a professor at the Western Michigan University and had the option to go to Italy or he had the option to go to Saudi Arabia. And I think when he realized he had such little time left, he thought, let's go explore the world. Let's, you know, he always loved to travel. They could have picked Italy, but I think in the end, because of his work, you know, he studied the condition of Muslims around the world who lived as minorities, it was more appealing. I think if he hadn't gotten the diagnosis, they would have gone to Italy. No question. Because Italy would have been, you know, what a fun adventure. But this idea of doing something meaningful, teaching their children about their roots, their faith, a really serious um, kind of approach to the world and then gave them the ability to be based in Saudi Arabia and travel around the world. For them, it was both and. They got to do both and that way. You're a devout Muslim. What role has religion played in your life, especially more recently? Oh, it has saved me. I mean, to have, I mean, what is Muslim prayer? What is it to be a devout Muslim? I mean, Muslim prayer is basically stepping back from the world. It's a meditation. It is a conversation between you and a higher power. It's thoughts, reflections, intentions. You just, it forces you to step back from whatever you're in and take a moment to think. And I think for me, when you boil down what Islam is at its essence, which is you know, the very first word that we revealed in our faith was read, educate yourself and, you know, think and reflect. And so for me, it's always, it's been my guiding principle, my guiding light. It's what, it's my, it centers me. It really does center me. I'm grateful for it. Aim, we should go to the speed round now. What are you reading? I'm reading Indra Nui's book, her memoir, which is excellent, by the way. You've met so many people. Who is one person you have yet to meet that you'd like to? Honestly, I mean, doesn't that say something about what it is to work for Hillary Clinton? I can't think of a living person that I haven't met that I'd like to meet. Does anyone leave you starstruck? Not anymore. Back in the 90s, yes. I cannot think of the last time. Maybe Bruce Springsteen. Maybe when I went to the Bruce Springsteen on Broadway, I was a little, uh, I was surprised that I was a little, but, you know, not, um, no, I can't. 
Because it's the one big lesson I learned. Celebrities are just, they're human. I mean, they're human beings like every, you know, everybody else. I mean, Mandela is sort of next level. I mean, there was just being with him was just being on a different planet, really. It just felt so, there's, he had a, oh, just a glow, an aura. You just felt so lucky to be in his in this space. But anyone living today, I can't, I can't think of. What is your nighttime routine? Well, it is, I like to, I I like to read a couple of chapters before I go to bed. So we try to eat dinner at 6.30. I try to cook sometimes. Most of the time I try to cook. And uh, it's, you know, bedtime rituals that our son, my son, he takes a shower, bath or shower, whatever. And we do some, we like to read together in bed. 30 minutes every night we read together, me and Jordan, uh, in bed before he goes to sleep. And then I'll try to do my own reading. Sometimes I'll watch a show. uh, And then I fall asleep pretty early. What is your favorite item in your closet? Probably my my Gucci leopard dress. Yeah, I I haven't worn very much with the blue ribbon. I just love it. It's like every time I wear it, I'm like, I look good in this. (laughs) Where is someplace you would like to vacation? The Maldives. High on my bucket list. And it's not going to exist in, what, 10 years? So high on my bucket list um, is the Maldives. So Lou Burns has been listening. He joins us every episode with our with a male perspective. And he's been listening to our conversation. And I'll let him take it away. I want you to go back to the time where, like, the news first broke about your husband. You know, and, uh, and that whole ordeal was just like, and you didn't get a chance to speak to anybody. But then you got to... I guess a quiet moment with Hillary because now you guys kind of share the same common bond. What was that conversation like? Ah, well, as I, um, people often don't remember that moment in that. I mean, I do, and maybe some people do, but I, I mean, I was a newlywed. I was newly pregnant. I woke up in Buckingham Palace or writing, you know, a letter to my husband on that stationery. I mean, I wasn't just living a good life. I was living a dream. I was living a dream. The story breaks. And I had been so, I was so excited about being pregnant. You know, Jordan was a complete accident. Uh, when, after we got married, people told us, you're, you know, you're both of you are so old. You're not going to ever, it's going to be impossible for you to have children. So he really was a blessing. So to have that, to be in the happiest moment of our lives, and then to have this shock. You know, she really, that first conversation, more of my trauma, Lou, was about the fact that I was pregnant and I wasn't able to share that with people. I, I was very traumatized about that. I mean, and I, that is a trauma I know stays with me today. I walk around here, I'll walk around the streets and I'll just want just randomly say I'm pregnant. Yesterday, I do it last week. I did it is so that because I could never say those words. It's like my you know brain reminding me. So to me, so much of it centered around this life I was bringing into the world. And even if she had judgments about my decision, because I think I know people, you know, feel like we do have this bond, but every situation is so different. I mean, obviously for her, it was, I mean, it was the future of our nation, our democracy at that moment. I mean, it, it could have been a constitutional crisis if she chose to leave, which she chose not to do for a variety of reasons, which she has explained in detail. And the fact that, you know, she deeply loved and loves her husband and, and, you know, their, their life and their marriages, you know, out in the world. 
for me, it was, uh, I'm, I'm a new bride. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, we're, you know, starting a new life together. We're creating a life in the world together. And she just was my friend. I'm here, whatever you, I'm here. And I think the fact that I walked into that hotel room in Abu Dhabi and she had asked my mother, she had flown my mother and my brother from London and Saudi Arabia to be there. She gave me what she thought I needed most. She gave me family. And she was right. And everything else didn't matter, you know? And I, and I so will always be grateful to her for that. I'm so happy I voted for her. I mean, look, I say this, you know, one of my, my goals when people walk away from the book is this, you know, that recognize and understanding that she would have been an extraordinary leader and president because she was and is. She is an extraordinary leader and she will continue to be so long as she graces us. Her poise and the way she talks about her situation is so inspiring to me. It really is. I mean, she's gone through a lot. Like she lived on this like 20 year roller coaster in the public eye where she went from being a young woman to an amazing professional to a wife and a mom to losing a lot of her professional career when Hillary lost to losing her marriage. And, and she's just got this grace and this acceptance and also this like hope. You can tell there's so much hope. Yeah, no, I really like her. Like I, I want to be her friend. I mean, I think that one of, one of the things that, that I also learned from, I think the way she talked about Anthony Weiner and the way that so many people are dealing with, you know, bad exes and bad divorces, But in many ways, you know, nothing could be worse than what she's gone through. But she still manages to have not only a very good relationship with him, but she talks about him so respectfully, which says so much about her and what kind of parent she is. I completely agree. Not even just what kind of a parent, but what kind of a person. Yeah. Right. Like, I mean, I I think like I think a lot of it has to do with Jordan, as she mentioned, that like this, you know, Anthony, without Anthony, she wouldn't have the core of her life, her soul, her son. But, you know, I think that Huma is someone just from our brief interaction that really probably looks for and holds on to what is good in people. Yeah. It is a lesson for anyone who has an ex and kids and how you how you move forward, how you talk about that person, even if they've committed a crime, even if they've done something horrendous. I just think it's it's incredible. And it's really a parenting lesson in so many ways. And the one thing I got wrong was I didn't realize how active she is with Hillary today. It's not just that she's writing a book. I mean, she has like a full time job with Hillary, which I really didn't understand. Yeah. And it, I mean, it is like if you if you take a step back and think about it, like, of course, Hillary is probably still going full steam ahead because Hillary's never going to stop. Right. Like she's probably still like she's a public servant. She's yeah. a public servant. Right. So she's still serving the public. And I think Kuma, you know, is is her partner in that really. I mean, Huma really is Hillary's professional partner. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para and our male perspective, Lou Burns.